Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Ridley Scott's new drama, All the Money in the World. The film tells the true story of the kidnapping of 16-year-old John Paul Getty III and the desperate attempt by his mother, Gail Harris, to convince his billionaire grandfather, J. Paul Getty, to pay the ransom. When Getty Sr. refuses and the captors become increasingly volatile and brutal, Gail and Getty's advisor, Fletcher Chase, become unlikely allies in a race against time, with her son's life hanging in the balance. In addition to all the money in the world, Mr. Scott's filmography includes the feature films Alien Covenant, American Gangster, Kingdom of Heaven, Blade Runner, Alien, and The Duelists, the movie for television The Vatican, and episodes of the television series Mogul, The Informer, Half Hour Story, and 30 Minute Theater. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for his 2015 feature The Martian and for both DGA and Academy Awards for his films Black Hawk Down, Gladiator, and Thelma and Louise. In 2017, Mr. Scott was honored with the DGA's Lifetime Achievement Award for Motion Picture Direction. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Scott spoke with director Michael Mann about filming All the Money in the World. During their conversation, Mr. Scott discusses how he came to direct the film, his intense emphasis on the storyboarding process, and how he handled the late addition of Christopher Plummer to the cast while still meeting the film's impending release date. Hello. Thanks for coming out. Hello. Good evening. All right, so um, we're uh, let's jump right in on the, um, the there's there's something really interesting about the um, the way the film starts to tell its story. Um, in the sense that you go into the hotel room when Getty meets the family, almost seems almost for the first time, and he says that um, he's talking to young Paul about the Minotaur, and he says that priceless is a is an insipid word. Everything has a price. The great struggle in life is coming to grips with uh, what that price what that price is. And then there's a second scene in Hadrian's villa. When he's walking with, with Paul, and he says, everyone will want a piece of you. You're, you're alone, uh, implying your defense is to deny them what they want from you. And um, then when he's distanced from his grandson, um, and the son's kidnapped, it then be, the grandson's kidnapped, it, it then becomes, what's the price that he's willing to pay to ransom him? suspecting that his, son, his grandson has become like his father, a dope addict, or is lying on a beach somewhere, and this is all a scam, and so he refuses to pay. The thing is, is that, that is a, it's a very efficient way of starting a story that is rooted, for the way I saw it, rooted so strongly in character, and it's been um, referred to as a thriller. I don't Genre's not important, but I don't think it's a thriller. Try to sell it from that when he says the thriller. It's not really a thriller. It's more 
it, it feels to me like it's a situation drama and it's driven and propelled by character. And the uh, what I found really exciting by that is uh, in the in the in the body of your work, it's really a dialogue picture, and it's very intensely rooted in character. And then, if that is the uh, if that is this is that of the story, the next question becomes: You asking yourself, how should this story tell itself? And um, did you perceive it that way when you were beginning? On it? That's the longest question I've ever had. No. <laughs> What was the question? What was the question? No, I, I got it. Um, what no, did you do today? Um, I think, uh, first I've put it down to David Scarper, the writer, yeah. because I don't write, uh, but I, as and when I work with writers, um, I work as closely as I can with them because it always produces good results, normally. Um, the Scarper script landed on my desk. I was told to read it mysteriously. I think it was one of those, what that silly word, black, is that what they call it, the black scripts? Yeah. It's, where did that come from? Anyway, the black strip. I found another black strip years ago called American Gangster. Steve Zillan said to me, read this script. Tell me I'm not stupid. Do you think it's a good film? I said, yes, we made the movie. So this came up. I was midstream of preparing something else, and I couldn't quite see the far bank. And I thought, you know what? This ain't going to happen in, on time. I can't better sit around. I've been sent this material by, not by Scarpa, but by the person, Dan Friedkin, who turned out to be a marvelous partner and financier, completely financed the movie, not Sony. Thank you, Sony, but they, they didn't. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, he said, I read the script. He said, we'd love it if you could do it. This was last uh, May, end of May. I was just putting out Covenant, and so I was already getting restless and bored. And um, we started there. And I... I said, I'm not going to manage to do this other film to the studio, um, in which case I'm going to hop off and I'm going to do this other one. So it was all prepared. And w the points you picked up were the, one of the reasons where the engine of a, mat any material is everything, as far as I'm concerned. If you get it on paper, making the movies easy. The hardest single thing to do is get it on paper, I think. You'll agree. Because it's your blueprint, it's your map, it's your GPS, whatever you want. And what Scarpa had already done, he got uh, a great structure, which was we meet the boy, and it's, it's up to me. I decided to do La Dolce Vita at the fr front. Anyone spotted that? No. Okay. Um, uh, so it was Dolce Vita. But also at the front, it was telling us that this kid is 17, smokes. Somebody off the street shouts out to him, hey, Paolo. He's known on the street. He's very happy. This is not an innocent kid who then to visit, see what's out there for the evening with three hookers, right? So then he's taken. You don't see him again for all, well, except in a brief shot in a vehicle. You don't see him for about 20 minutes. Yeah. I thought that's what was wonderful. Because as I was reading it, I'd forgotten he'd been kidnapped. And because the other characters were so strong coming up, it all related to this, this event that somebody had been kidnapped. But I'd forgotten about the boy because I was so interested in Getty, I was so interested in the mother. And uh, so the structure was designed by Scarpa. I think the structure is fantastic. Yeah. No, and, sorry, talking heads films can be wonderful, uh, but uh, also they can be, they can dry up, even though the talk is great, 
the structure can, if the structure is simply A to Z, it can wear out. Yeah. Did it, did it when you were uh, in your process of working on it, when, did it feel like a different kind of narrative to say Prometheus? Well, I was, yeah, I was, I was so taken with all the characters, each one as they came up, Getty was this monster initially who then actually became really, so, so monstrous he was positively amusing. Nearly, some of his comments and nearly would bring him a laugh, a smile. But then at the end, by the end, you get to the end of the movie, you realize that this man, when he says, somebody says to him, would you not, uh, if you take him at face value, then you're wrong, you've got to look at the layers. And when he says, um, uh, he talks about the abyss of wealth when he's cleaning a gun. And I think that's the secret, that scene there is his crashing, crushing disappointment We've seen him invest in his his favorite grandson by the walk in the in Adrian's villa. We've we've seen also him be a warm man, a, a good grandfather, or certainly seems to be on the surface. Then uh, it the, it goes on, and then the the most I think instructive thing about Getty at that moment in the scene of, where he's gun cleaning, he talks about objects and things because objects and things never disappoint you. Whereas he said, "I've never found a person who hasn't disappointed me." And, and Chase says, me neither. So that was a very interesting thing. So his disappointment is, takes him to the window, he's talking about abyss of wealth. The abyss of wealth is, in a funny kind of way, almost as, as bad as the abyss of poverty, except I'd rather feel lonely in a Rolls Royce than on a bicycle. Okay. So, but, but, but what, as you approach the point of no return, whether you're poor or whether you're rich, the end result will be probably the same. Therefore, each case is a similar case of misery and abject, um, you know, down, down, downward slope. Um, so I thought that was a great scene for Getty to reveal what he was really like inside. He was a really lonely man. The um, viewing it from the outside, the um, I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing the picture having a different form. And and, and 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 terribly successful and uh, very very consistent, and it starts in the very first shot, where the um, uh, where Paul's walking down the, uh, you know, in La Dolce Vita, Italy. Yeah, yeah. He's walking down the what's the name of the street? The, uh, the, the Fiori. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the uh, the awnings from the shops are impinging on the top of the frame, and they're kind of crushing us. Your perspective, you're crushing our attention right into the center, and we watch him walk along, and then they're replaced by some practical lights on the top of the frame, and then they're replaced again by the umbrellas that's sitting at the table, and it pushes us into his character, his situation, pushes us into the into the really intense authenticity. You really, I, I totally believe them in La Dolce Vita, Italy, and um, there's a number of other shots like that. It also has that compression. Um, there's one where she's walking, uh, uh, Gail is walking in, and there's the boughs of the trees or the leaves are just all pushing down on the top of the frame. When he's in the, uh, with the prostitutes by the Roman walls, yeah. the, it's black on the top of the frame. And in the same way, there's, uh, when they're in the Hadrian's Villa, there's this screen you put in front of us, which is actually the snowflakes. The result of it, consistently for me, is, is that, I feel that I'm in a, almost like a subway, you know, kind of hurtling through a tube 
you know, tracking with these tracking with these people's lives, and the um, um, it's very very effective, and it and it's from beginning to end, and I think is is masterful. The um, question I got for you is is I know your process, okay, and you you sketch. Uh, Ridley went to Royal College of Art as a, as a fine arts painter, and the distinction of your visuals is that nobody quite is quite is able to encode visuals with content, with actual story content, the way you do. A painter does. A fine art painter does. So that the visuals you create are not just design, they're not decoration, they really have heavy content. Um, so my question is, is, is this something that you're discovering in the process of doing your sketches, which you do for every shot, or is this something that's preconceived? No, it uh, started off way back when at college, there was no film school, but there was a bolex in a cupboard with a, a light meter, and, and I saw this camera, and it was a clockwork camera, and I said to the, the tutor, uh, can I buy the camera for four weeks in the summer? He said, no, not until you get a script. And I said, well, I'm don't write a script. So he said, well, you don't get the camera. Isn't it amazing what you'll do if you haven't got, if you're not going to get it? So I wrote a script, and off that he gave me the um, film. But what I did, I boarded every frame in absolute uh, detail. So that's the way I'm blessed with a good eye, and I'm blessed with, that's the only thing I could ever do at school, was I draw, drew very well. I drawed very well, so I was bad at English. Okay. So, so um, the uh, boards, I've still got them, and uh, they're framed because there are only four boards on canvas where I drew the person who would be in the film right the way through, and the person I drew was Tony Scott. So while we're doing this, uh, this enforced labor from a brother where I ruined his summer holiday, he actually was learning uh, what he was about to do for his life. But the board... It, for me, is everything. I go medium. So when I'm reading um, the script, uh, the first time, my brain works. I'm already seeing the film. I can literally see the film. So as I opened up to Italy, I went boom, immediately thought of Fellini. So that then becomes a swift decision, which I'll play with later. Will I copy Fellini a little bit uh, to get us into the Italian period? Yes, fine, but make sure you make use of it. So the youth of it was a 17-year-old boy wandering around an area where he shouldn't be. So that, that then becomes useful and tells you something about the kid. Uh, but I, literally, that's all boarded. So I go close-up, medium shots, wide, da, da. When I find I have to, and there's some very good storyboard artists in the business. Um, the best one I ever worked with is a guy called Sherman Labby. Remember him? He did, he did all the boards on Blade Runner. He would never give me them afterwards. I said, go on, give me a boy. He said, nope. Um, uh, but I, otherwise, I board everything. It, it's, it's like me with a typewriter. I'm typing as a writer, and I have to board it. So by the time I've finished, I've filmed the film on paper. So when I walk on a set, I don't have a script or anything. Just go right over there. there, there, there. And I need the best of cameramen actually help me out because I'm impossible on set. The, uh, how many have seen Alien Covenant? Well, the, the beginning of Alien Covenant is extraordinary. And it's not just, the, to me, it's not just the process of, of, of sketching. What I mean is, is that the, uh, 
it's the, the white opening. Uh, David has just been woken up. The android has just been born. From his point of view, he is in Valhalla. He's in heaven. He's in some kind of godhead. Yeah. And he's seeing his creator. And all the... the uh, and and it, it is almost his vision of what heaven would be and the uh, with perfect objects you know uh, and he says to Wayland and Wayland says to him um, where do we come from that's the most important question which is also the question of the whole film and at the end of that scene um, uh, David observes to Wayland you created me but you will die and I won't. So great Wayland question. Is very upset, and then, <laughs> and then, and then we cut, and it's it's a capsulization in intensely visual. Yeah. Uh, half the content comes purely from the set, the places, the way you shot it, and it's the whole film in a in a capsule. What's the question? There's no question. It's a statement. <laughs> so. Let's talk about Chris Plummer. Okay, go ahead. He's uh, he's extraordinary. I was wondering if you how deep you got into Getty's. How do I? I, yeah. I cast Chris Plummer because I can only remember him not from that song, that place in Switzerland, uh, which actually I haven't seen. I, 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 he said, "Have you seen?" I said, "No." He said, "How dare you?" Okay, right. But I I always remember him from Michael's film. I'm not. Groveling you, uh, but he played uh, the guy head of sixty minutes, right? Uh, Mike, Wallace. Mike Wallace, and he was very, very powerful, and uh, and so he'd always been on the list. There was only him or Kevin. That was it, and I went with Kevin. But the rest happened, and uh, so I called him up, and he said, "At last, you call me." Okay, right. <laughs> he's. Uh He's, 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 he, he brings a, um, a vulnerability to it as well as the pathology, and those as really uh, vivid. Did you get into any of any any uh, deep background with him to Getty and Getty's relationship with his father George? Um, no, because I flew into New York when I had the problem. I <laughs> uh, you don't want to hear about this now. Um, and I said to my partner, I've got to get to New York. I'll get Chris Plummer. We'll be shooting in nine days. Because this took about an hour. We uh, discussed it in depth, decided. Uh, and I must say, if to have a financial partner like this guy, I'd say, listen, you're a businessman. Uh, for us to redo this, I can do it. I can deliver. But it will cost X to do this. We've budgeted. He trusted it by then because he sat right through every day of the filmmaking in the process because he's just fascinated by a movie. So he sat every day with me. Um, and it became actually quite all right. Normally I don't have anyone near me because I get very bad tempered. But um, he, it was quite all right. And he said, no question, let's, we have to do it. So it was, it was like a marathon. I went to meet with the next man. And uh, he flew in. He, he lives in Connecticut, so I, I flew into New York, met him. That night he said, well, I have to read the script. I said, oh. And uh, uh, he read the script the next day, and he said, called me up, said, yes, let's go. 
I said, listen, there ain't much time here for research. And so, we, you know, we, I think the great thing about the script also is there's a, a great deal of research has gone into it and you feel that. You know what I'm saying? When you get a good script, uh, if I get a really good script, I don't want to question anything. I just say, thank you very much. Let's make it. Um, it's only when you start to unearth things you can turn a gold film into a development deal. You've got to be very careful about that. When I get off the script, I say, I love it. They say, Danny Chin, no. When are we going to shoot? Let's put it fine. And uh, so I never question, but unless I develop myself, then the evolution of me and writers is very uh, elongated. And mostly fun, I think. And I th So I knew Scarp had really, really, I talked to him at length about this and at length about Christopher Plummer coming in who will bring a different uh, strength to bear. He will bring emotion. Uh, Kevin did a good cold job. I don't mean cold bad. That's the choice. It was cold. It was tough. It was rough. Even the humor was um, uh, kind of designed. Um, uh, this man would bring to it a heart and a smile and a twinkle that you're never going to get rid of. That's why he's been with us for so long. And you, you, you can, and that twinkle and smile can read his warmth or being or being chilly. So when he's saying bad stuff with that twinkle and smile, somehow it's even more effective. Yeah, that's great. Well, he said that thing with you and where Pacino's saying to him, "This is," he said, well, "This is what we, this is what we've worked for, Mike." And Mike says, listen, you sh little shit. He said, I'm 72. I don't want to end up in some second-rate radio station in Oshkosh, right? Yeah. That's, that's a great line. Was that your line? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, uh, I remember this. Is he still drinking? What? Is he still drinking? Sorry? Is Chris still drinking? Totally. So am I. Yeah. <laughs> but I haven't had one yet. No, no, no. Where is it? Never drink when you work. Yeah. All right. Um, there's, I read that you were shooting things in the morning, and every time you finished a shot or finished a scene, it got shipped to the editor, Claire Simpson, who was editing it during the day, and that by the end of the day, you were able to look at that scene. And then that got shipped on to, uh, for music, uh, editing and everything else, and, and mixing it, um, which is... Uh, interesting way to work. You can only do it if you're really experienced and you know and uh, really know what you're doing. Which leads me to this, this is a quote from you. Um, when you get a guy who's done a low budget movie and suddenly you give him 180 million, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's stupid. You, you know, you know what the reshoots cost, and it's, it's I can't imagine millions and millions. Um, a lot more than my fee. They huh? hired me in the first place. They'd be on budget and wouldn't go for budget. <laughs> you can you can get me for my fee, which is heavy, but I'll be under budget and on time. This is where experience does matter. If you're really experienced and you know what you're doing, it's essential. So that uh, it actually is is um, you know it it is an it is what what you did is an incredible feat in terms of in terms of turning it around the. Um, uh, you want to amplify on that? I mean, you can't, you know, um, you need a great team. Because I, as soon as I knew we had a problem, the first person I called was my line producer, 
and uh, before I even talked to my financier, we're all going, oh, what? You know, what? Um, what? Uh, and uh, I, within about 45 minutes, I would call up this gentleman. I'm not going to tell his name because he's the most valuable person to me. Every one of you in this room will steal him, so go off. <laughs> so um, I call up this person saying, listen, you got the problem. How fast can I be shooting if I get plumber? And then, of course, you do the phone calls of availability of locations, availability of the actors, in what order can they be together, and so you work out the analysis. Turned out we were lucky because it was only my easing Mark out of his film for two days to come and help us out. Michelle said, I'll do it now for nothing. And Plummer, once Plummer said that, I was shooting within nine days because the locations fell into place. And, but, you know, you bring, that's a lot of great units. That's a great unit. I'm not telling you who they are. That's why I cut the credits short. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing quite as good as a first-rate. Uh, there's nothing quite as good as a first-rate Hollywood crew. So no. I mean, they didn't do anything. The goodness everywhere. Um, talk talk about Michelle a little bit. Um, track. You know, when you do what we do, everything we watch. Um, it's, there's something going in some shell somewhere, particularly if something special. And uh, uh, they went, Michelle went into my special shelf uh, a while ago, I think, when she was playing the wife of the of Heath in the, in the, the uh, yeah, yeah, oh, Batman. And I thought she had such a, a significant but a small role, and I just, the bell went off. And I just keep watching whatever she was doing, the bell kept going off, and I thought, one way or another, she's just about the right age. Mid, She can play mid to late-ish 30s. Um, the only thing, she's got that very short blonde hair. But with the, that was good anyway, because that we made some of the best wigs. Those Italian wigs are f incredible. Um, and she was just, delight to work with and a rare unusual bird for me because uh, sorry bird bird is the in the sky not you know female um, uh, she's a rare bird uh, in the, in her talent because the discussions aren't complex they don't get in the way they are about and, and usually you've one has talked at length about who Gail Getty was and there's only just a very limited number of a piece of footage of Gail Getty. And she was, Gail Getty was clearly kind of athletic. She'd been a, a swimmer of water polo, of all things, as a water polo swimmer. Um, and, but she was very assertive, and the assertion came, comes out onto her mouth. So when she talks, she talks with an assertion where her, her lower lip would stick out. We both noticed that. <laughs> She said, did you notice something like that? I said, yes. She said, so she clocks in. Did, you, did anyone notice? The, 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 even the acting even goes to the physicality of thinking through how her face is going to be. She's remarkable. And what I think is fantastic about this, because there's always people on the side, even at my stage, saying, don't you think she ought to cry a bit? Don't you think? Not? No. Uh, I'm a sentimental dude, absolutely a sentimental. And they've still got Dean. Do you know, I'd love to see you know, her more vulnerable. I said, watch the bloody film. You're not watching the film carefully enough. But uh, 
to toot the trumpet just once, the guy in the New York Times gave a fantastic review. He said there was not one iota of sentimentality. Thank God. You know, you know, we are divided by the same language frequently, as Winston used to say, uh, because uh, you know, sentimentality in Americanese, and I, I'm not taking the Mickey because I've spent too lo- long here now, and I know there's a room full of Americans. Okay, so um, sentimentality. You get an executive may say, the "Script is great. It's sentimental. It's melodramatic." I gotta stop. I said, "You just mentioned two of the worst words you can possibly apply to anything I've done." Absolutely, yeah. yeah. She, she she dwells in this space. It's totally real. I, I, she had me at the edge of my seat the whole time. Uh, amazing. Yeah. But then she'll just she will layer. I'll say. Um, I think I always try and make the actor as soon as possible my um, partner in in what we're about to do. Because if you make a partner of your actors, then you trust them and they trust you, and that club tends to exist right through the film. And that's why somehow then, it, because they feel so secure, then it's like turning them loose. And I like to turn them loose because I've cast them very carefully. When I turn them loose, I don't want me to have to tell them how to be emotional because it's in, within the context and the, the slot you're trying to get, it's, uh, it's best I don't tell them, I'd rather it came from them. Because then there's the the highest compliment I can ever have to any actors. I've never thought about that one. Day. You want to go on? And they say yes, please. Okay, right. But but she would. I would tend to be very uh, just decisive now on what I've got, what I'm getting, uh, how many takes I may need, and have I got it? Because there's a bloody second hand going with a dollar sign on it. And I've oh, no, I'm, I'm serious. Because that's how these films just run out of control because that happens, unless as well as I do. And she would always say, but we, and then she'd come and ne- it wouldn't be about another take, it would be about, but we haven't tried this layer. I'd just love to try that layer. Don't you think that makes sense? And I was think, thinking, she's right. And so let's go again. So it was one of the better relationships with an actress. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did she, uh, what, what was the zone? Was there any consistency like she'd be? Great on takes four, five, and six. Or no, no. I tend to be. I've discovered way back when that I've been to the thirty-five takes, dude. And 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 who does ninety? I know who does. You want know who does ninety? Oh, wait, okay. But I, I tend to be now down to about two, because if the scripts, if you're hunting, means there's something wrong with the script. If you got the script you want. And you've cast who you want, uh, and you 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 did the right choice. You can make the wrong choice. You did the right choice. Um, normally, they come in so pumped up, ready to go in the morning, that if you to then sit down, and talk to them forty minutes before every take, they want to kill you. I'm serious, and I, I and I got this off to some of the greatest actors uh, who I, I I got to know very well. I said, I want to ask you a question. When you come more, you just want to shoot, don't you? I said, yes. I said, and by, and I said, that's why I've always decided way, way ago to turn on the first take. Do not rehearse. I'm, I'm going to do a walkthrough for, for, from me and Darius and the other cameraman I'm working with and the boys on the wheels. 
on the on the focus, but I'll always be working four cameras, so the cameras are very well placed. So seeing this says scheduled to be all day will be finished by eleven thirty. Seriously. I'm not showing off, it's just logical. And uh um I think the rehearsal period can also just run away because I discovered when I'd say, right, let's do a camera rehearsal, we rehearse, run it through. I go, damn, you just did it. And so then I prep again another film or another scene later. I'm going to do a camera rehearsal and do not act. And they'd say, right, action for the walkthrough. And you go, stop, you're acting. I don't want to say, I want you to surprise me. That's that's how I run the floor. Yeah. But it, it, it opens them up. They feel like part of the club, you know what I mean? The, there can be a them and us situation with an actor and and, and the crew, and I I try and break that wall down. Yeah. Uh, Claire Simpson, is this how how many films have you done with her? Claire Simpson's the editor. Uh, two. Two. Claire was. Uh, I saw Salvador. Went wow, good film, Ollie. And uh, then immediately, who understood it? And I needed her. Claire, Claire did a very nice. Film for me, little film I did years ago called uh, uh, "Some Me." Then I never saw her again. She, I think she had a bad time or something. I don't. Know. But uh, she went off, and you know how the clock—you you never catch up. And then this is the first time it's it's caught up, and I had a great experience with her. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. There's one particular shot that that if the cut points were one or two frames later, it would not work at all. It's it's when the uh, when the van is the Volkswagen van is driving away and it, it pans into a rear shot, and it's a perfect Pizarro perspective diagonals on the bottom of the frame, and then it cuts to uh, Saudi Arabia, and you've got the railroad tracks on the right in exactly the same kind of um, Pizarro. I didn't notice that. Did you know diagonals? That? Give me a break here. I'm trying. To <laughs> that, that, and was, that was David was Lee's train, by the way. That was Lean's train from Lawrence. Yeah. Over the train's hill. coming at you. Yeah. So yeah. That the be I knew it was there because behind around that corner, behind the train, I spent several weeks there doing Martian. So I used to drive over the train track every morning. So when we were planning, I said, we need to go to Kuwait. I said, stop. We'll go back to Jordan. I know there's a train. We'll have Getty arrive in the train. It happens that fast. Because I knew the Lawrence train would go, would go around the park. That's the train where... The Turkish train that Lawrence blew up in Damascus. Yeah, but it's it's a it's it's a sim, it's a seemingly simple cut, but it, it's so it just glides you right through it, and you have the van going away, the train coming towards you, tracks are on the right, mountain ranges on the left, the Saudis are waiting for Getty to show up, but it it is literally like if it one or two frames earlier or later, it just it just wouldn't work. It's perfectly seamless. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Great. Terrific. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Ridley Scott, check out episodes 11 through 13, which feature Mr. Scott discussing his DGA Award-nominated film The Martian, alongside other nominees such as Alejandro Iñárritu and Tom McCarthy at our Meet the Nominees 2016 Feature Film Symposium. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. 
And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.